0: To force yourself into something is just slow death, especially if you're doing something because your parents want you to do it.
1: Welcome to a brand new episode of Off Record, where we interview high-achieving people from Ashton Kutcher to the co-founder of Netflix about their secrets to success. Before we get started, I wanted to share with you a new project I'm working on called First Text. But first, a story. When I was 19 years old studying computer science at the University of Illinois, I was working on a side project. I decided to tweet one day about that side project and ended up getting help, funding, and mentorship from a serial entrepreneur and investor, Keith Raboy. If it weren't for that tweet, I would be in a much different place. Now, I would like to return the favor, but this time over text message. If you are ambitious, technical, and tinkering, text me 650-505-9984. Text me what you are working on and why, and or what non-traditional things you were doing growing up. Every month, we'll pick 10 people and intro them to incredible mentors from the likes of Mark Randolph, the founder of Netflix, Sean Rad, the founder of Tender, Naval Ravikant, the founder of Angelist, Kevin Hartz, the founder of Eventbrite, Steve Huffman, the founder of Reddit, Lucy Guo, the founder of Scale AI, Beth Turner, who's an investor at SV Angel. Jawad Karim, the founder of YouTube, Max Hodak, who co-founded Neuralink with Elon Musk, and many more. To learn more, go to firsttext.com or text me 650-505-9984. This week, I speak to veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur, advisor, and investor, Mark Randolph, who is most known for his role as the co-founder and first CEO of Netflix. Mark spends most of his time now advising and mentoring early stage founders. Most recently, he co-founded the analytics startup Looker, which was just acquired for $2.6 billion by Google. He has written how he achieved all of this success to an exact science in his new book, That Will Never Work. In this week's episode, we talk about learning the skills of how to be a CEO without actually being one, the art of selling before having anything to sell, how he met his co-founder Reed Hastings, and how they started Netflix. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you.
1: So I'd like to start by talking a little bit about this book that just came out, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea That Will Never Work why write the book now?
0: Tell me about that. Well, it's kind of funny because people have been suggesting for years that I should write a book and I never really quite understood the point of why I would want to do that. But something actually happened just a few years ago. I was at this conference and the conference was like something corny, like finding your purpose. And I was a speaker there, but it was about for people who kind of had reached a point of success in their life and were kind of saying, now what? And it occurred to me that I was kind of in that exact same situation. I had left Netflix a number of years ago and I was doing, you know, keynote speaking. And so I'd have, you know, 10,000 people showing up and I'm saying, how am I using this? What am I saying? And at the same time, I was doing a lot of mentoring. I was working with other early stage entrepreneurs trying to get their businesses off the ground. And... Kind of learning that all of these skills that I'd picked up over the last 40 years in my own career as an entrepreneur were actually valuable not just for other entrepreneurs, but for almost anybody who has an idea they're trying to make real. So, you know, that'll never work is really – it's kind of in one way, it's the untold story of Netflix You know, it's how we started off with a used music CD and ended up with a publicly traded company, but it's also this chance for me to kind of reveal all the little secrets that I've learned about how you start with nothing more than an idea and how it's not that difficult to really make it real.
1: Awesome. I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned 40 years of a career. Before you even started your career, what was Mark Randolph like in high school growing up? (laughs)
0: That's a great question. So I was pretty fortunate in that I grew up in a household that was, I was going to say extremely tolerant of risk, but it was even more than that. I mean, I would come home in middle school and tell my dad I was going to go caving or I was going to go climbing. And rather than being one of those families where they were yelling, you know, what are you crazy? What are you out of your mind? It was always like, wow, that sounds great. And almost every time I came up with some crazy idea, rather than getting shot down, I was encouraged. I was always the person who was starting clubs or selling something or doing some side hustle. For some reason, it was almost a compulsion for me. So a lot of these traits that ended up helping me when I actually began becoming, I guess what you then call it, which you now call an entrepreneur, Um, were all things that kind of just came about organically as I was growing up.
1: What was your first job?
0: (laughs) The first job, okay, I'll give you the first job, but I don't usually even start with this first job. I, after school, went to work for this crazy, I was going to say exotic, I'll use the word crazy, person in Memphis, Tennessee, who had sold his company and had more money than he knew what to do with. And he was buying things left and right. And one of the things he bought was a ghost town in Colorado. It was parked on the banks of the Colorado River, uh, probably halfway between Vale and Steamboat. And he hired me to run this thing. I had zero experience in resorts. I had zero experience in hospitality. But for some crazy reason, he thought I'd be able to figure it out. But the reason it was an amazing first job is I got out to this place, and we would have these huge blowout weekend parties with hundreds and hundreds of people So I had to hire staff, I had to manage people, I had huge cash flow issues. And I had to figure it all out in my own. So it was really this very, this was my business school. It was very visceral, hands-on, how does business really work? I'd had to do my own marketing and I'd find out, I'd do the marketing on Wednesday and Thursday and I would find out on Friday and Saturday just how good of a job I had done. So that was kind of this great setup. The first real job I had was even crazier in a way. I was working as the, well, I'll use the real term, I was the gopher for this CEO of a music publishing company. And I think my title was chief of staff or something ridiculous, but really I was a gopher. My job was to follow him around with a pad of paper and sit quietly on the couch while he held his meetings. And whenever there was any kind of to-do list item, like if he would, someone would promise the CEO, I'll have those numbers to you by Friday, I'd write down, make sure he has numbers by Friday. Or conversely, if the CEO was meeting with someone from outside the company and made a commitment, I'd write that down too. But that was also this great learning experience because I got to see how a CEO worked, how they made decisions, um, how they spoke to employees, how they spoke to people outside the company. I got to see how they prepared to talk and how they delivered a talk. But more importantly, I got to see every piece of this business, which had a lot of different components. And, and I'll conclude the story in a second by saying that one of the places it introduced me to was the mail order division of this company. And when I say it was like a music publishing company, it did sheet music. So if you wanted to buy like John Denver for auto harp or Led Zeppelin for French horn or something crazy like that, that's what it sold. And their mail order division was... This two lines at the back of every songbook, which said, for a list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to so-and-so. And And my job was going out and making copies of the list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks, sticking it in the self-addressed stamped envelope, and mailing it off. And then when the orders came in, I'd go to the warehouse and pick, pack, and ship them. And then for some reason, which I still don't understand, I found this fascinating and began experimenting. You know, what happens if I do two pages of great songbooks. What if it's in color? What if it's a brochure? What if it's a catalog? How do I do a list? And I began teaching myself mail order and thus began 20 years of becoming the junk mail king. (laughs) And
1: quick question. When you started this career when you worked for the music company and you got to be the chief of staff, was it intentional or by accident that you learned these skills of what it was like to become a CEO? Was this something that you had in mind when signing up for the role?
0: No, of course not. I mean, you know, I was just probably a year and a half out of college. So unlike youth of today, where everyone seems to know exactly what they want to do and is driven to get it, I had no clue. I mean, I had just gotten back from living in Colorado, where, you know, out in the boonies, where I wore cowboy boots every day. So I had no idea where this would lead. This was just a job. And it was only by Stumbling into this thing, which all of a sudden getting this chance to do mail order That I really found what was in many ways and if anyway still is like a passion of mine So no, no idea what I was getting myself into and
1: on that note, I guess for, for the other people listening, like, what is your advice for someone in your shoes 40 years ago, you know, just starting their career, they're not really sure what they want to do, but they like to tinker, they're experimenting, they're doing side projects, and they just graduated college, where would you tell them to go?
0: Well, the first advice is relax. Relax. You do not need to immediately be pursuing it because it, it means some people are lucky. You know, I do have friends of my, my kids who they knew in third grade they wanted to be a vet or they knew they, they had this passion and they were pursued it. And wow, in some ways they're lucky. But most people, my own kids and myself had no idea what was going to be the passion when you first graduate from college and to force yourself into something is just slow death especially if you're doing something because your parents want you to do it. Like you're going, I think I want to be an investment banker, but that doesn't really hold up. You don't really want to be an investment banker. It just seems easy and predictable for a lawyer or a doctor. But anyway, you mentioned you know, the side project thing. That is by far the best way to figure out whether you like something or not. What's wonderful now, especially if someone has an inkling that they want to do a startup or they have an idea that's making them passionate is a tech idea, What an amazing time to have that opportunity because now all the tools that are out there and the technical stack is so available that you can figure almost anything out. It took us six months and about a million dollars at Netflix just to build this simple e-commerce website. And now if someone had the exact same idea we did, they could have gotten that going in, you know, a weekend and probably for $2,000. $2,000. Right. And
1: you alluded to it earlier, the direct mail, what you learned there. I remember when we first met five or six years ago, you were telling me the story of how you would sell for building or writing the magazine. I, 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 va- <laughs> I vaguely remember that.
0: I'll give you the lead in here just to explain why this is such an important story for anybody who's an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur is that most people, and, I, and I've been doing this for a long time, people get ideas and they, it's a great idea or so they think and the idea is in their head. And rather than doing something about it, they start embellishing it and they're thinking about it and going, Oh, this is so cool. When everyone's using this, then we can do this and then this. And so this simple idea starts taking on weight. It's, it's like, you know, it begins. If it's a house, you begin putting on a wing, and then you put a second story, and then pretty soon you've got the – you have the the whole tennis courts and the turrets and the gargoyles, and you've built this huge thing in your mind. And, of course, by then, it's a huge thing, and you can't do it easily. It's expensive, and it's impossible, and it may not stand up its own weight. So the trick is to get these ideas out of your head quickly and easily before you let them build up. So the story – is that you can test things without actually doing them. And this is way before the internet. I was in the publishing business and we had an idea. We were gonna start a magazine and we had an idea to start a Macintosh magazine. But there was a whole bunch of different directions we could go. And starting a magazine back then and now is pretty expensive because you have to do all the production, you gotta do all the writing, all the photography, uh, you gotta lay it all out, you gotta print the copies, you gotta sell the advertising. and so. Testing a magazine by doing it is really expensive. And so what we realized is we probably don't need to actually do it. So what we did is we put together direct mail pieces for eight different versions of the exact same magazine. These are all Macintosh-focused magazines. You know, one was focused on the graphic design element, one on the other attributes of it, et cetera. I can't remember now what the details were. But we created on paper magazines which didn't really exist. We would have the articles. We'd have pictures of the last eight issues, which of course didn't exist. And then we would do these mailing pieces, selling magazines that emphasize different approaches. And then we would see which one got more orders. And then the one that won is the one we produced. And then for the other seven versions, we'd send people their money back and say, I'm sorry, we're not going forward. However, we are producing this magazine is in fact going forward. You want to subscribe to this one. And it was an incredibly valuable lesson that, to test something, I didn't actually need to do it. I just needed to understand what I was really trying to find out and figure out some corollary way to do it.
1: Yeah, I love that story. I remember, you know, you uh, sharing that many years ago, and I've regurgitated that to others over the years. And so you you did that. Let's, let's talk about that will never work now. So How did you meet Reed?
0: Two friends and I started a startup. And it was a fairly geeky little startup and we were still in beta. We didn't even hadn't even launched yet. And I think there was about nine or ten of us. And we were plugging away. And then the wonderful thing happened, if you're a startup, was we got acquired. And it was a great outcome because the investors, of course, made money, and our stock options all of a sudden were worth something. But the bonus was we all had jobs at this new company, and this new company was a company called Pure Atria. And the bonus for me was twofold. One is it was this company had been founded by a gentleman named Reed Hastings, and I was going to work directly for him. And the second bonus is it turned out that Reed actually lived in the same town that I lived in. And so Reed and I began carpooling to work. We did this for six months, and Reed and I became reasonably good friends, not just from the carpooling, but from working together and having the time every morning and every evening in the car to catch up on things and talk business. But the reason this plays so nicely into the Netflix story is probably less than a year later, might have been only nine months, Puratria was now acquired by an even bigger company. And again, great outcome because the investors now are making even more money. Our stock options now, of course, worth even more. Best outcome was that Reed and I both were getting fired. And we were getting fired in that wonderful Silicon Valley way that a lot of us are familiar with, where you have, you know, maybe six months of government approvals to wait out. And so they deliver this interesting news to you that, you know, Mark, uh, in the future, we're not going to be needing your services. Thanks so much. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to pay you. We're going to vest your options. And you've got to stick around to the deal closes. But you won't really have anything to do. Just be here in case we have questions. And I remember being struck and thinking, God, this is a deal. You know, they're going to pay me. They're going to vest my options. I get to come to work every day and have this office with my fast internet connection and my whiteboard and all these conference room. But... I won't need to do anything. Um, and so my first thought was, "This is a, I'm going to use this time to start my next company. And Reed, he was also being made redundant, as they euphemistically put it. And he didn't want to start another company. He wanted to change the world of education, which he's miraculously actually done an amazing job at. So he was going to go back to school. But he, you know, once you're an entrepreneur, you're always an entrepreneur. So we wanted to keep his hand in. So we agreed that he would be my angel investor that I would start and run this company. Uh, He'd put in the first money, he'd be on the board, but we needed the idea. Reed and I then spent months carpooling back and forth from Santa Cruz to uh, Sunnyvale where Puratria was, brainstorming ideas.
1: On the carpool rides, in the book you talk about a shampoo delivery service, uh, (laughs) custom formulated (laughs) pet food and customized baseball bats, and you were clearly very excited about these ideas, but you didn't You didn't seem to none of these seemed to catch Reed's attention. How many ideas do you think you had and how long were you working on each of these ideas before you said, you know what? I think Reed says he likes this one. We're we're moving forward with that one.
0: Well, it wasn't necessarily a Mark versus Reed thing because both of us were batting these ideas around and some of them required a little bit of research. And then you just do get into this debate about is this going to work or not or is this really going to cost what we think it is or how big is this market? But I was lucky because each day we'd debate these things in this carpool ride and then I'd get to the office and I could go into this room where there was, again, my fast internet connection and I could spend all day. Trying to figure this stuff out and no exaggeration. I'm going to guess we probably went through a hundred ideas and you know, and some of them would only last for half the ride before we both came to the conclusion it was ridiculous. Others might have taken two or three days before we finally ran them to ground. And you know, a good example of this is this was 1997 and this was just at the dawn of the e-commerce era. So Amazon was already out and they were getting some success, but they were only a bookstore. And so there was this feeling that there's hundreds, if not thousands of categories of bricks and mortar retail that we can bring online. And we were brainstorming what to do. And we had played with the idea of doing, well, can we do music? No, that's too obvious. And Amazon will do that soon. Can we do video, which was an $8 billion category, but figured that Amazon would do that one too. But then we thought about video rental, which also coincidentally was $8 billion market. And we were pretty sure that Amazon wouldn't do that. We were pretty sure nobody would because it was a ridiculous idea in the first place. But I still spent a couple of days running that to ground. And I had mentioned those 20 years when I was a junk mail king. You know, I had done a lot of work in the catalog and mail order business. So I had mailed Everything all over the world and I knew exactly what things cost and I went and had contacts still at Federal Express and UPS and back then in 97 video came on those big VHS cassettes, those big heavy clunky things. We realized quickly it's not going to work. So in other words, even these ideas that seem good, you run them for a few days and you go, not going to happen. And I think what separated the actual idea for Netflix from the other ideas that Netflix could have been, which is, as you pointed out, customized shampoo or dog food formulated for your pet or any of the other crazy ideas we came up with, was that we one day were sitting having coffee downtown before we went to work and were brainstorming about ideas and had heard about this new technology called a DVD, which was in test market then. And because of all the previous thinking that had gone into video rental by mail, all of a sudden it was like having a puzzle with the one piece missing. And all of a sudden someone picks something off the floor and goes, Hey, I just found this piece. And without even looking at it, you go, Oh my God, that's it. And then that changed the nature of the debate, which was we can't mail DVDs. They're too fragile. If we put it inside the, you know, the jewel case, it'll be too heavy and it's going to break if you try mailing it, you know, naked in the envelope. And so then we did the thing that Every entrepreneur does. And again, back to that whole idea behind the fake magazines is you figure out some way to test your idea without actually doing it. So we decided we would actually go try and mail something to ourselves. And we walked down the street from the coffee shop to a used record store and bought a music CD and then a few doors down bought a little pink gift card envelope Look, he put a greeting card in and stuck the CD in the envelope and went to the Santa Cruz post office and popped it in the slot and Ma- mailed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz and then went to work amazingly enough got next day when he picked me up there it was unbroken twenty nine cents
1: and I imagine you know in the book you say how you were very lucky that this was local delivery and not state by state delivery. What do you think would happen if you had mailed that d v d and the d v d broke
0: uh we'd have an expression about something like a kibble and chill or something like that or a- Hair care and chill. You know, in other words, (laughs) who the hell knows what would have happened. But very most likely, we we would have then gone to work saying, well, that DVD rental by mail sure was a bad idea.
1: (laughs) So it worked. Reed received that music CD, and what happened next?
0: So then, you know, I had the nature of my day change because then I wasn't just looking for an idea. I was going. This one actually seems like it's compelling, and you do all this research. You know, how many DVD players have been sold? How much does a DVD cost? What will it cost me to put together an e-commerce website? How many people will I need? How long? But you know, you get to that point, and I know everyone who's ever launched a company gets to the same point where you realize that you still don't have any idea if it's going to work or not, but you've pretty much gotten to the end of your available research. And then you just have to do that thing that we all do, which is you you got to take that step and base this decision to try it on, you know, incomplete or inconclusive or even worse, contradictory information. And... We did it. Reid wrote us a check for 1.9 million dollars. I took it to a local Wells Fargo in Los Gatos to cash it, and I kind of hoped that someone would usher me into the back room, and you know, they'd make a little buzzer there, and then pour me champagne. And but you know, nothing. You just give them the check, and they ask if you want cash back or something. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, so we took the money, uh, hired a dozen people, we got this little crappy office in Scotts Valley, California. And six months later, in April of 1998, we launched this little company called Netflix.
1: At the time, late 90s, what were DVDs like? Was it would you say they were similar to what VR headsets are today, or a little bit more popular than that? Since DVDs were kind of brand
0: new, right? No, it was absolutely way at the early stage of adoption. So. This was a geeky video file device. These players cost $1,500, and so there just were not that many out there. And that was this first big challenge, which is how do you launch a company that the only addressable market is DVD player owners when there's very, very few of them? You know because you know, when I told my wife the idea for what would eventually be Netflix, you know, the first thing out of her mouth was, that'll never work. The funny thing is, she was kind of right, because it was a terrible idea. And I don't know what gave us the confidence we could pull this off. Because at first, we had due dates, we had late fees. You'd mail the disc to someone, it would take two days to get there. And then they had to keep it for a few days, and they had to mail it back. And all the while, there was 9,000 Blockbuster stores. You know, there almost you couldn't throw a rock without hitting a Blockbuster store. So we were pushing against a whole bunch of uh, weird obstacles.
1: And with 40 years of experience today, do you think you would have invested in yourself back in 1997? (laughs) If you had all the experience, you were the investor, and this person, this kid was pitching you
0: Netflix? That's a great, great question. I can answer that. I would say unequivocally, yes. And it's an interesting reason why. And it's purely because you say, Mike, would the current Mark Randolph do it? And one of my favorite expressions is is that nobody knows anything. And I've now concluded it is absolutely true. Nobody knows anything. Nobody knows in advance whether an idea is a good one or a bad one. I have heard enough pitches to realize that I cannot tell if this idea is going to be a good idea or a bad idea. The only way to figure it out is to try it. And the people who invested early in Netflix were Not people who were saying, oh, this eventually will be a $150 billion market cap company. I got to get in on this, baby. They were people who were looking at me and read and saying, we should give these guys a shot. I mean, I pitched my mom. I pitched some of my best friends. So the, the answer to the question is now as an angel investor, I don't pay a lot of attention to what the idea is. I don't pay a lot of attention to what the category is. I pay a lot of attention to who the person is and do I want to give them a shot? And that's the fun part is if you're looking for the type of person that you want to root on, that you want to watch what they're doing to see how they're pivoting, how they're trying things, how they're scrambling. And hopefully they're enjoying themselves and you get to be a part of that ride too. So if you would ask me 10 years ago, never in a million years would I invest in Netflix. If you would ask me now, oh, that Mark Randolph guy, yeah, let's give him a shot.
1: And what are some of those common traits or themes that you see from the entrepreneurs that that you back? What What are the things that you're looking for?
0: So the first thing I'm looking for is that there requires this really strange, contradictory personality trait of on one hand, you have to be incredibly sure of yourself. Because the fact is, everyone is going to say, that'll never work. Everyone you go to with your idea is going to listen to it and poke all kinds of holes in it and demonstrate, you know, what seems to be a conclusive way why it will never work. But you have to have this self-confidence that says, I'm going to figure this out. But, and here's the contradictory piece, I'm also looking for a person who can listen who when someone else is pointing out things about this company, about this idea, about this market, they're listening and saying, to what degree does this resonate with me? Rather than shooting everything down blindly or persevering in spite of the information they're getting, they're able to listen and interpret, is there new information here and absorb it. And that's a very unusual thing. And when I find someone who does that, That's the type of person I like to bet on. When you sat down and pitched your idea, I saw that in you, Corey. You know, you were young, but you were super smart, and you were very confident, and you were very sure of yourself. But at the same time, I could tell that you recognized there were still things you didn't quite understand, and you were very eager to hear those things. And that's unusual.
1: I appreciate that. Today, you still have that whiteboard in the office you're sitting in right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, my wife has banned it to the basement. (laughs) <laughs> but I absolutely do have the whiteboard in the. And, the, you know, I do, I love whiteboards. I just love the ability to put something down, anything down, and know that if you don't like it, you just erase it. And something about writing and seeing things visually, I think, is just a great way to make ideas come out.
1: Yeah. And Nobody Knows Anything, it's chapter 14 of your book. I have that open right now. Can we go through a few examples in the early days of Netflix where that phrase kind of came about?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it's certainly that Nobody Knows Anything is a recurring theme in the life of any entrepreneur. I mean, the biggest one is at the beginning, of course, when we began pitching the idea of DVDs by mail, everyone said, oh, it's a digital medium. It's just a matter of weeks before... Everyone's either streaming these movies or downloading these movies and we took that with a grain of salt because on one hand, we knew that in one way they were right. Of course, inevitably, it's a digital medium so people are going to be downloading it or streaming it but the thing that we believe no one really knew the answer to was when and we knew there was a lot of barriers to it being soon You know, there was no bandwidth to the home. There was no digital rights management in place. Studios were reluctant to release their content. And so our challenge back then of how to get around this was to say, we need to build a company that doesn't care when this transition takes place, where we can be successful either way. So neither do we bet on it coming too soon, which would put us out of business if it took too long to get here. But neither do we bet on branding ourselves as a fastest shipper of plastic or something, because then that would have us tied to the past when that transition took place. So we don't know what's going to happen. No one knows anything. We'll just prepare ourselves for either eventuality. Right. Makes sense.
1: And so you got your... Originally, $2 million promise from Reed turned into $1.9 You raised that additional 100 k cashed the check in the bank, hired a few people. And what happened next? How did Reed go from a student to getting more involved in the business?
0: You know, Corey, it's probably was one of the most difficult decisions that I had to make as a, a CEO. And it wasn't a business strategy decision, although there was certainly a lot of those which kept me up at night. But there was one particular night, and this is probably a year or so in, and I was sitting in my office, I don't know, it was six or seven at night, and then Reed pokes his head in, says, hey, we need to talk. And as you know, when someone says we need to talk, it usually does not mean we need to talk about something good. And Reed came in, and basically, he began running me through a PowerPoint slideshow. And it was about what he believed were problems that we were running into under my leadership. And it was... And at first I go, listen, Reed, I'm not going to sit here and let you tell me I suck using a PowerPoint. And so he put the PowerPoint away. But And he goes, but no, this is not about how you suck. It's just about that I'm concerned that the problems we're seeing now are going to be more intense as this business grows. It's got to be a business founded on flawless execution and i'm concerned about your leadership. so i first thought he was, you know, trying to fire me or something. but what i really gathered as he was doing was saying that if this was going to succeed, it would do better with both of us. what he was saying was that he should come in as partner in running the company. and the reason i say that was an incredibly hard thing for me was that i had this dream of starting and running a successful e-commerce company. And now I kind of realized that I had actually split that dream, that there was actually two different dreams, that they may not, in fact, be the same one. That on one hand, I had the dream of having this company be successful. And that was the same dream that was shared by the investors and shared by the employees and even shared by the customers. But there was that other dream of it doing so with me at the helm. And that there was the potential that those two were in conflict. That, in fact, if I insisted on being the sole person running the company, we may not, in fact, be as likely to be successful. And I really had to say to myself, what's more important to me? Am I willing to swallow my ego a bit here and recognize that with Reed in, and, in fact, with Reed as CEO, we stand a much better chance of being successful. And I remember driving home that night just with my head spinning about what do I do? Because Reed was pretty gracious and he goes, listen, if this is not okay, I'm not going to force this down your throat. Even though as the bigger shareholder, I could, you know, if you, if this is not working, we'll just, we'll sell the company, we'll split it up and we'll go home. And I drove home that night going, what's the right way to do it? And I sat, I remember sitting with my wife on our porch sharing a bottle of wine and ultimately come to the decision that I think it would be a stronger company with the two of us. And it would be a stronger company with Reed as CEO and me as president. And it would be not just stronger, but almost more fun with me being able to focus on the parts that I was really good at and really liked, like the marketing, the product management, the content, the website development, and let Reed focus on the things that he was really good at and liked, like the engineering and the backend operations and the finance. And even though it was painful and difficult, in many ways, that next two years was the renaissance for Netflix. With the two of us, amazing things started happening. You know, we finally developed the business model, which worked. We came up with the technology for the personalization. We figured out new mechanisms for doing overnight delivery. We This company took off. And so was this a brutally hard decision? Yes, really. I mean, anyone who has been in that situation can only imagine how hard that is to say, I'm going to step aside and let Reed be CEO. But wow, looking back on from where I sit now 20 years later, what a that was a pretty pretty good call
1: really good call and what were some of the things that you learned from Reed you know 1997 and 1998 kind of before he joined the company full time and then today what are some of the things that you've learned from him
0: uh, I'm not sure that, that there's things specifically I'd say I learned from him not that I didn't learn anything from him but it's not like I took away some Oh my gosh, look what, look what he did. But what I found was that Reed and I shared this belief in this direct, honest, almost blunt conversation. And more importantly, having these conversations which were egoless where we could come in and just go at each other from contrary points of view. But then as soon as it became evident that one person or the other had the right solution or that a compromise was a solution, it immediately went away about whose idea was that, or it was done. It was the best way to solve these problems. And I had never really worked closely with someone who had that exact same way of communicating. So what I learned was how powerful that could be, not just for two guys in a car bouncing ideas around, or two guys as a president and CEO money a company together, but how that would inform a culture of an entire company and how powerful a communication style that could be for decision-making for everything.
1: And I guess in the early days of Netflix, is there anything that you wish you had started doing or done more of, specifically like actions or activities with, with compounding effects?
0: It took us a while to speed up our rate of iteration. For example, first of all, of I didn't realize we actually were a DVD company first. But even before that, we were renting DVDs and selling DVDs. And we got to this big junction where we realized that selling DVDs was a loser. I mean, it was bringing in 99% of our revenue, but eventually Amazon was going to come after us. So we, in one day, walked away entirely from selling dvds so we could focus everything on this idea which had no merit whatsoever which was renting and we had lots of ideas to get this thing going and at first i was this testing perfectionist so we would do these beautiful tests for these ideas with you know custom photography and we'd lovingly craft everywhere to copy we'd stress test the site test every link and then this might take us three weeks to put a test together and then it would not work and we'd kind of realize that We'd wasted three weeks. So, all right, a little faster. We do a test in two weeks, and it would fail. We wasted two weeks. We do a test in a week, and then we do a test in you know two tests a week, and then a test every day. And but a year later, we were doing a three or four tests every day, and as you can imagine, they sucked. You know, we'd have broken links. We'd have the wrong image. We'd have the watermark in by accident. We'd have misspellings and typos. But the thing I learned and the answer the question, the thing I had wish I had learned a year earlier was none of those screw ups made a difference. That if it was a bad idea, that no matter how perfectly crafted this test, still was a bad idea. But if it was a good idea, this test, which was deeply flawed, didn't make a difference people would raise their hands they'd fight to do whatever it was we were offering they'd reboot the site they'd call us they'd come to the door there was this cultural thing that emerged from that it wasn't about having good ideas it was about building this whole culture and this system and this process for testing lots of bad ideas and that ended up being an amazingly powerful thing for us and it came from learning that we don't need to test the actual thing we could fake it that we could test it without doing it and i wish we had learned that a year earlier
1: and and how is that going today
0: well certainly i don't know how netflix is doing it now since i haven't worked for netflix for a long time but certainly that style has been adapted by everybody and ne- more importantly there's all these amazing tools you can use to do that i mean optimizely just to you know plug them there's tons of other tools like that they'll let you test a 100 things in a half an hour I mean, it's unbelievable what's available now to do iterative testing to quickly hone in on the right idea and do versions of that magazine testing. Like, Corey, you're familiar with my son. And he decided to dust off that personalized shampoo idea that Reed and I had banged around I remember the car that. Many years ago. But he didn't go out and formula, go and buy shampoo ingredients or buy packaging or he didn't do any of that crap. He put together this fake site, I mean, that looked for all intents and purposes like it had been in business for years, including with the banner that said, congratulations, our 100,000th customer. And then he went out and drummed up interest. He posted in all the hair care forums saying, hey, I just heard about this really cool company doing personalized shampoo. Anyone checked it out yet? I mean, all this, you know, growth hacking and drove people to a site for a business which didn't exist, which he'd put together in a weekend. And so, yes, it's fantastic to see that. And in some small way, I kind of feel privileged to have been there at the beginning of this, that I was able to, I told you before, I was the junk mail king. I had launched mail order companies, so I do personalization. And I knew mail. I had launched magazines, so I knew subscription. Through all of this, I knew testing and metrics, all kinds of different analytical tools. So in many ways, the seeds for Netflix were planted 20 years before the internet. And so when I saw the internet come along, I realized this was an amazing tool for doing a lot of the things that we're seeing happening today. Do you have
1: a playbook, either private or public, that you share with you know the companies that you work with today?
0: I absolutely have an approach. and But more importantly, it's, it is. It's it's available. That playbook is called That Will Never Work. It's a 300 and some odd page playbook because I really, this is how we even started today's uh, conversation, I've all of a sudden began working with college age kids and begin realizing that all of these things that Reed and I did, all these things I did back with Mac User Magazine and Mac Warehouse and Micro Warehouse and Icon Review, Visioneer and Integrity QA, all these startups that I did, all these tricks, I'm showing people how they actually were applied as two guys turned that used music CD into a real company. It's not that complicated. It's an approach and... That's the beauty of the book. It's not just for—I mean, someone who's a, has an idea that for a startup business. Oh my God, they'll eat this shit up. For anybody, everyone's got these dreams. Everyone gets told that all your dreams. What well, a load of crap. How? And I kind of realized I actually do know how, and I've done that. And that and that and that will never work is is that story.
1: Well, it's a wonderful book. I just finished it a few days ago. What's next for Mark Randolph? You just had Looker get acquired by Google for $2.6 billion. You co-founded that company. Congratulations. That's uh, incredible. What's next?
0: So I am the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, certainly with Netflix, I got a chance to see a dream I had turn into this amazing outcome. And you know, since I left Netflix, I haven't done another full-time stock of my own, but I've been mentoring other founders. I, as you pointed out, you know, I was mentoring the first two people at Looker, so I was first employee as coach. I was the ABC, which is the anything but coding guy, and I had this chance to see another company that I had this front row seat turn into this amazing success. You never know, and I love what I'm doing. I love sitting down with people who have an idea and helping them make those next couple steps, and so that's what's ahead—more of the same. I mean, I love this business. I love sitting down with people and saying, I'll stake you because I love what you're trying. I love coaching people along the way. I love seeing occasionally the companies I'm working with achieve some success, but the success isn't necessarily about an IPO or an acquisition or even making any money. It's about having that fun of sitting around a table with really smart people solving really interesting problems. If Any of us get to do that. We're all in the best business in the world.
1: And, and what about personally, are you still climbing mountains and doing mm-hmm. things outdoors?
0: That absolutely goes into the luckiest guy in the world, is because as I do now have a chance to do that. For example, when I was starting Netflix, in fact, even for other startups during my career, you're in that okay. There's three big things in my life. There is my job. There's my family, and then there's what I used to call feeding the rat, which is that gnawing about. I've got to climb something, or I've got to do something. You know, kayak some river. Or I've got to do something like that, and that. The rat didn't get fed for a long time. I used to subscribe outside magazine and I had to stop. It's just too painful. But then when I came out the far side, now it's back. Now I'm out all the time. I'm going to be going, I'm going surfing tomorrow. Balance is the important thing and I feel pretty really fortunate that I've achieved some of that now.
1: What are some of your favorite things to do in addition to surfing?
0: <laughs> you name it. Anything outdoors. You know, I, as a present to myself, I built this whole network of mountain bike trails around my property. So I still love screaming down those things at speeds that are definitely unsafe. Do a lot of backcountry skiing, do a lot of alpine climbing. You know, getting up and doing, you know, multi-pitch rock, snow and ice stuff is still a thrill. Anything I can do to get out in a river, get out in the mountains, get out in the desert, count me in.
1: And I know, you know, the title of the book, that will never work. Have, you know, your wife said it to you when you had the idea for Netflix, have you regurgitated that phrase to anyone recently?
0: <laughs> Good question. No. I am not going to be that guy. Even though, of course, in my uh, because you know that will never work. It bumps head on into nobody knows anything. Right. So, uh, anytime someone says that will never work, I say, hey, nobody knows anything. Was that a potential title for the book? <laughs> Absolutely, it was. It's true. Originally, in fact, that was the working title was Nobody Knows Anything. And did y'all do saying.
1: a series of tests online to come up with the title?
0: Of course, Corey. We've actually mocked up books. We showed different versions of different people with different titles, different subtitles. You know, listen, I'm not going to uh, I'm not gonna be one of those guys who doesn't practice what he preaches. <laughs> that's <laughs> great.
1: That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and chatting. This has been really great. That will never work. You can probably get it in any store or it's on Amazon.
0: A- Amazon, bookstore, Barnes & Noble, your local bookseller, Audible. I actually read the, uh, the audiobooks. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, wow. it's out there. Go get it.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark.